everyone and welcome to another episode of the Backstag Connected Care podcast series. My name's Claire Ratcliffe and I'm a Medical Affairs Manager for Western Europe here at Baxter. Today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Rachel Dunscombe, UK Government Advisor, AI Council Member, Visiting Professor and Director at the Digital Health Leadership Programme and Co-Chair of the Open EHR International CIC. Good morning, Rachel, and thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Good, thank you. Um, I've got a few questions. I hope that's okay. Yes, absolutely. So would you tell us a little bit about your career today and and how you've arrived where you are today? Oh, yes, absolutely. So I originally worked in the NHS as a CIO. I did uh, around about a decade. And I was very privileged to work on innovation projects in the you know organisations I was part of. And that, for me, really led to a, a curiosity and an interest around um, how we digitise healthcare, mm-hmm. digitise pathways, but also improve quality and safety. Because quality and safety, for me, was something that was incredibly important. Uh, I then became a CEO of the NHS Digital Academy Digital Health Leadership Programme. Yeah. And that programme um, really allowed me to lead a number of innovators through a journey of learning. And I was very much privileged to be able to publish things like research, yes. uh, which were fantastic around digital health sort of standards, innovation, how we use things like medical devices and, and you know apps and wearables. And more recently, I've been doing work globally on standards. So I'm now leading up some data standards, which are used by wearables, apps and devices. Um, But I'm also working on standards for things like AI in terms of quality, safety, governance and policy. So that's been my journey, really. And I continue to navigate this space, which is incredibly interesting. Yeah, it sounds it. Absolutely. So a question now is what do people misunderstand the most about connectivity, clinical information and devices in healthcare? So I think people um, misunderstand how useful these devices can be. So we have a workforce you know, crisis across the world now, yes. not enough nurses, not enough doctors, not enough you know, radiologists. And the, the point for me is these devices can take a huge amount of sort of weight off the system Mm. to allow our clinicians to do the caring and and the human part of healthcare. And in doing so as well, we improve quality and safety because, you know, allowing devices to actually monitor, allowing, you know, apps and wearables in the home, those sorts of things. um, They actually give us data that allow us to manage by exception, not have to be present to take every observation, which is routine, not an exception. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think the biggest misunderstanding is understanding the size of that opportunity, which really is huge in terms of, freeing up our workforce and really enabling them to do the things that they need to do. Okay. And how do we overcome that misunderstanding and, and potential barriers that we that we see in healthcare today? Yes, so the, the barriers are really about not understanding the economic case for these things. Okay. And, and really, traditionally, we've made business cases based on, you know, local return on investment that yes. is hard money. 
And I think what we need to do is make business cases in a much more um, systemic way. So look at, you know, things like societal value, quality of outcomes, uh, you know, the return on investment over, you know, different periods of time. Okay. And I think we need to spend a little bit more time. Indeed, when I was on the, you know, sort of academy teaching, we taught how to make an economic case and, and how to look at health economics, really. Yes. So... In that sense, we need to stand back as well and look at where we are. So we're in a very busy health system mm -hmm. post-COVID. Yes. We can't necessarily see the wood for the trees. And I think we need to really stand back and say, what are our real big opportunities? And for me, using you know medical devices, apps and wearables is one big thing that can take you know the strain off the system and allow us to actually get some headspace to do you know the new models of care that we need to do. Yeah. So in hospitals today, facing transformation plans, digital transformation plans, um, what is the biggest challenge or barrier for the organisations? That's an interesting one. The barriers to, you know, transforming with digital technologies. I think there are multiple ones. And the first one, which I you know, have worked on is skills. You know, how confident and competent are you? Um, and that can be really hard for boards and senior leadership that have never been orientated in, in technology. They can be fearful or, or worried. And so I think there is an education piece. Okay. I definitely think there's uh, a piece around the business case. So, you know, do you make the business case for just the tech or do you make it for new ways of delivering care, new models of care. And I think we need to get um, to, you know, these technologies being part of a change in care. And we need to be able to describe that as part of a business case. And I think we, we absolutely owe it to our clinicians as well to do the, the sort of wonderful education that I know you've been involved with, to make sure that they feel confident and competent mm -hmm. using these technologies and their new way of operating. And actually for me, when you do see clinicians who are empowered to use technologies really well, they, you know, they are just happy in their job yes. when uh, they're confident in the technology they're using. Mm. So for me, it, it's really making the environment right Okay. And um, making sure that the senior leadership is really in the right space to back that change. So for healthcare professionals working mm. with devices every single day, what do companies need to consider? So uh, it, working with working with devices every day, it's a change for people. And I, I think we'll start with a change because when something new comes into your world, especially as a very busy professional at the mm -hmm. moment, the time has to be made to really orientate people why they're going to use this and what benefits it's got. Um, and, you know, I've had examples where I brought medical devices in and people haven't necessarily wanted to use them until we fully explained the benefits across the whole pathway and how they're contributing to improved care. So, you know, the first bit is really orientating people in, in what it is and how to use it. Okay. I think the other thing that... Um, it's been really important for me is actually the governance around those devices. Yeah. Okay. So how clinical governance and how safety and quality governance actually works to get that as part of um, a pathway or a procedure or, you know, standard operating process. And, um, you know, it's quite interesting because we we think a lot, a lot about tech. Yes. But actually the humans that have to use the service or mm -hmm. receive the service or operate the service, um, that whole human 
sort of technology interface piece is a really big consideration. So, you know, um, I actually did some research with class research and they found that with digital solutions, 60% of the success is actually human factors. Ah. And that really made me a lot more interested in, you know, the human technology interface. Yes. And so considering the human factors, um, the governance factors, I think are really important. That makes the difference between something not being accepted or being an absolute success. Yes. Um, so actually, you know, I, I've become quite interested in governance. Mm -hmm. I've become quite interested in training and education and also in human-centered design around the sort of projects to embed these successfully in pathways or, you know, operations. Yeah, so it's it's not just about putting that technology in, whatever that looks like. It's about all of those other things, the standard yeah. operating procedures, yeah. the people that are going to be using them and all of that design around that. Absolutely. So, the, the, you know, the design of the future yes. occur. You know, how, <laughs> how does the human interact with this stuff and what does it mean for them? So it leads me beautifully into my next question, which is you've been involved in, in connected vital signs implementation yes. within um, tertiary centres. Yes. What outcome were you trying to achieve? How did that come about? So the outcome for us was we were, you know, we were about quality. It was about quality. And as we all know, if you if you do this, if you automate the observations, you improve quality because the data is always there. It's always recorded. It's always, you know, something that you can access as well to manage exceptions. And for us, the automation of vital signs was really important because we were doing a lot of work around sepsis, delirium, dementia, AKI, yeah. you know, uh, conditions where we were risk stratifying individuals in their journey. We were using intelligence to do that okay which was quite advanced yeah. you know <laughs> yes it was yeah um and those observations we knew we could rely on the thing with you know Kerr, when we're relying on manual observations is sometimes there are issues on a ward and they don't you know get recorded or sometimes um sometimes they're not done in a timely fashion yes they're keyed later yes. and if you're trying to risk stratify somebody for sepsis or for delirium you need to know it goes in right away yeah, yeah? so for me that automation piece that you know that the automation of vital signs was almost a foundation block of doing this sort of risk stratification of patients okay but it had those benefits of quality and safety while allowing the nurses and the doctors to do a bit more of the caring stuff that they should do, i.e. face-to-face interactions, yeah. Sure. So um, it, it, for me, it's part of the advancement. As we mature as healthcare systems, mm. I see it as one of the foundation blocks that every healthcare system is going to need. And it's interesting that you say that, Rachel, because around the human factors and the mm possibly not recorded because we need to remember these are not calm environments they are not with multiple demands on the nursing staff with on Absolutely. the wards i mean there is so much going on on the ward yes. that you know you have patients who are exacerbating you have um portering coming in and out <laughs> you've got cleaning you've got you know people going uh, you know out for radiology whatever else and it, it's it's to be expected that not all of them will be recorded. But if we can take that away and just make it, uh, you know, by default, it's recorded. Yes. 
that's win for everybody. And it's also a win for the, you know, the advancement of digitization, yes. which allows us to pick up people who are, you know, needing urgent treatment. So it's, um, for me, it's just a foundational layer for the future. Mm, interesting. So it was a huge success. Mm. Um, but it would be amiss if we didn't talk about, were there any learnings from the project? Yes, absolutely. It takes, you know, quite a team to maintain some of this infrastructure in terms of, say, upgrades. You know, okay. if you're going to upgrade your electronic patient record and yes. your, your devices, you need to be able to do very safe transitions course, yeah. to the new you know, version and make sure that the observations are going through. Yes. During an upgrade, you'd have to make sure that the observations were being monitored while the, the EMR system or the, the patient record was not available. Wow. And so really, this was becoming mission critical. Yes. So as you were changing things around the system, how did you make sure that you know those observations were still being acted upon? Yeah. So really, it was critical infrastructure and mm -hmm. making sure uh, that you had the right service management and support arrangements around it. So lessons learned for me are really that this is an essential utility when you put it in. And yes. you, you need to look after it as you would do anything essential in the hospital. You have to take it seriously. Yeah, and I and I presume then it's it's a real partnership with um, the facility, the leadership of the facility, yeah. and the suppliers and the healthcare professionals. Yes. So it's true multidisciplinary partnerships. Absolutely. Okay. So you are changing the model of care. Yes. So first of all, you have to get the buy-in from leadership. Then you have to redesign the model of care. You have to have the new operating processes, a new nursing model. Yes. yes. Um, and, you know, that all has to be led by senior people that absolutely believe in, in what they're doing and why we're doing it. So mm -hmm. that that's really important. Um, the supplier, yes, it's absolutely essential that you can work with that supplier. And that is an ongoing relationship that you need because these things are evolving. You know, they, they have software updates, they have added functionality, they have things that we can all build on top of in terms of evidence bases. Mm -hmm. And so that partnership around, you know, the global knowledge that you're your sort of partner brings to you, mm -hmm. um, it's really important to stay close to that and to them because that allows you to improve as well. Yeah. Rachel, what would be the success factors for a facility or hospital implementation with connected devices? So I think it falls into two different areas. One is the readiness of the infrastructure and technology itself. Okay. And one is about the program readiness. So. The infrastructure, it's really important that you've got Wi-Fi, you know, that works. You take cybersecurity seriously and you're, yes. you're ready for this. You know, you might have backups like, um, you know, 4G to actually make sure that if, if you have a network outage, the data is still coming in. Okay. Um, so that readiness assessment of the infrastructure is essential. The second is the program readiness, and that's about the readiness for change. Okay. So, um, you know, training, education, um, understanding why you're doing this, making sure that, that that sort of change reason has been communicated. The training okay. on the wards in situ so that people are orientated. Um, and also making sure that people have got time to become familiar with this. That's one, you know, scientifically they found out that's one of the biggest success factors is allowing people to, to actually experience and, and learn how to use it in situ before they go live, if you like. So those are the success factors. Um, but I'd also say that, you know, if you've got an organization that leads change well, 
that senior buy-in is also important too because the the senior message from execs about them backing the change yes i think is also a big factor in making sure that people adopt technology on on sort of wards okay what are the main advantages of a connected facility or hospital and and looking at it from a patient healthcare professional and a clinical workflow Big question. (laughs) It's a big question, the advantages. So, you know, we were 99.7% paperless at Salford. So we were a digital hospital. And I was very privileged to be the CIO there. But we had double outstanding care, outstanding in both the hospital and community, which was connected. And for me, that link is absolutely hard-coded. The more you digitise safely and consistently Mm -hmm. and in a standardised way, the more you improve the quality of care. And actually, we all know that unwarranted variation causes harm in care. I really believe that unwarranted variation in, you know, um, data or in um, how you provide a pathway causes harm as well. Hmm. And So it allows you to standardise all of those things and be consistent. Um, And that delivers, you know, a much better level of care for people Mm. so for me the the real piece about the connected you know digitized hospital is that you have the ability to actually move forward based on evidence and data you can become a learning health system yes because you've got consistent data that you can use to actually learn from and so you know quality safety and efficiency you know to, to to drive through where humans shouldn't be doing things, we can allow their time to be used where it should be appropriate. They're the sort of attributes of a a digital facility, if you like. Um, the benefit for me really is about the end patient, though. Yeah. If you ask me, you know, what was really impactful, it was the impact for the patient. We could provide a whole health record mm. for that patient from our locality, not just the facility. Yes. So, you know, that record was there for them to take, for them to use, and for us to use to risk stratify them and their healthcare journey. Mm-hmm. And that's very different to paper-based or part paper-based organisations. Okay, so a connected facility, hospital, mm-hmm. um, has access to data for research as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what does that look like? So this is uh, data for research is a really exciting topic at the moment, because I've got to say, first of all, we have to maintain privacy for all of our citizens. Of course, that's our number one principle. But actually, now we have technologies like synthetic data that can take a data set with real people in, create the same attributes, but take all the human elements out of, of any individual. Okay, And so... The journey that I've taken really through data being available is working on things like the Salford Lung Study and, you know, real world evidence systems, trials, you know, sort of um, quite advanced studies of, of, uh, you know, new models of of care or care delivery or working with, you know, life science companies on on efficacy studies. But the future 
um, and this is where, you know, the last two, three years I've done some work, is actually synthesizing those data sets so that we can find early insights or early okay. sort of signals in the data without any individual worrying that their data has been compromised. Okay. And that for me is really exciting because the aim for the future is to take, say, the observations data. Yes. You know, synthesize that maybe into synthetic data sets and then allow universities and research groups to actually find insights in that and then go back to the original data and validate them with real data with patient consent. So we're, we're moving into a new world now where big data can be made safe to work on in, in a wider spectrum without um, sort of compromising privacy in any way. Okay. But learning health systems are the future without a doubt. And that speed to insight from data, mm -hmm. it's absolutely essential that we, you know, we make sure that that's optimal. Okay. And so that sounds like we're moving into this predictive analysis. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah. would you talk a little bit around that for me? Yes. Yeah, so healthcare has really embraced data science. We're seeing a lot more data scientists. And um, what we're seeing really is proactive work with the data to look for patterns okay and that's a very interesting space because what it's allowing us to find are patterns that we hadn't seen before yes it's allowing us to validate things we already knew but couldn't validate and it's allowing us to really change our view in an informed way yeah okay. so some of the examples that i've got around data science um you know we did some work in rheumatology um, around changing the pathway and enabling the patients with their own app. And then we had outcome data okay. that proved that that was a more effective pathway. But actually working with data scientists, you're able to slice that data. You're able to look at sub-cohorts, which cohorts does it work for, which cohorts doesn't it work for. Okay. And actually with this data science approach, the biggest thing that has really struck me in the last year or two is that certain interventions or certain medicines or certain pathways okay. may work for 70% of people or 60% of people but not another cohort um, and we're now looking at you know really understanding the attributes of who that works for okay and who it doesn't, doesn't work, work for and and we've got the skills coming into healthcare systems and you know working uh, at a national or a, a local level yeah to actually figure out things that work for people or don't. And that in turn means that the future will be more personalized. So a person like you, this is suitable for, but a person like that, they need that sort of treatment or pathway. Yes. So yeah, we're getting into a more granular world of understanding more about the individual and what works for them. So Rachel, final question. I'd be really interested in your thoughts and insights. Um, what does the next two to five years in healthcare with regards to clinical informatics and connectivity of vital signs look like? Oh, vital signs over the next few years. That's a really, really good question. Well, if it was down to me, I would absolutely want to make sure that everyone, uh, you know, across Europe, uh, UK, Europe, US, mm -hmm. and all, all the, you know, uh, the major countries had that as a prerequisite. I believe it's an absolute building block that you need. And then, I believe that for many people with hospital at home, virtual wards, 
um, you know, long-term conditions, that vital signs should also be monitored for exceptions. And I, I would like to see that in five years because the technology exists today. Mm -hmm. We've proven it improves healthcare, improves quality, improves outcomes, and improves independence for some people, you know, who've got long-term conditions. And so I would really like to see vital signs as almost a building block with say a maturity model of the different levels of vital signs moving out to the home or you know beyond um, and making sure that we really enable the best care for our citizens because we've proved that the highest quality care is backed by you know real-time good vital signs yeah? yeah so that would be that would be what i would like to see and i think that realization of the quality being linked to you know, good vital signs and good data, I think that's there. So for me, you know, in the next five years, I, I really want to make sure that we actually get that embedded in all of our sort of modern healthcare systems. Okay, Rachel, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. It's uh, you've given us incredible insights, um, and uh, we look forward to speaking again. Thank you so much for listening and please make contact with any comments or feedback and don't forget to look out for our next podcast episode.